0: The federal government this year announced a new approach to closing the gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and the rest of the community. The strategy included a $1 billion administrative plan and a further 17 targets to strive towards. It also incorporated a new redress scheme for stolen generation survivors in the Northern Territory, the ACT and Jarvis Bay Territory. But despite the renewed focus, concerns have been raised over worsening suicide rates in First Nations communities and the growing number of our children caught up in the out-of-home care system. Efforts to address the Close the Gap targets have been the focus of a more collaborative approach between the Government and the Coalition of Peak Aboriginal Community Controlled Organisations since 2019. Auntie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the Coalition as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Nacho. Aunty Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out.
1: My pleasure. Always good to be with you.
0: The focus of this year's Close the Gap report was leadership and legacy through crisis, which of course was a reflection on our path through dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness of the vaccine rollout for First Nations communities?
1: Well, I think overall, our community control sector has done pretty well. I'm a bit concerned that in the areas that, you know, weren't directly affected by COVID, that a bit of complacency crept in and people thought, no, we don't have to get vaccinated. We haven't got COVID in our area. But it's now proving with the outbreaks in the Northern Territory that everyone needs to get vaccinated as soon as possible. If people want to avoid serious illness and hospitalisation or even death. So, the answer to that is to get vaccinated. So, supply is not an issue. Supply has been available on request. So, if our ARCHOs advise us for quantity and other supports around administering the vaccines, like personal protection equipment or other support staff, that they need engagement, community engagement officers or whatever, they need to advise us and we have supported them to the fullest extent possible. So I think we've done a good job. In the areas that are run by state government clinics, I'm afraid to say that I'm not as confident that they have done as well and they really need to pick up their game.
0: Aunty Pat, uh, as we've spoken throughout the year and as you've just mentioned, where the response to COVID has been most effective is when it's community controlled. Now, I know that you've spoken a lot about that and I know that I've seen it through my work. But I know for a lot of our listeners, they might not be quite aware of just what a difference the community-controlled sector is making. So I wonder if you can just give us your reflections on why that's been such an important component of an effective COVID response and what we've really learnt through this period about the effectiveness of community control.
1: Well, we highlighted the dangers of the pandemic very early. As soon as we had a positive patient uh, or, you know, a positive diagnosis of coronavirus in Australia when a passenger arrived uh, in Melbourne from Wuhan, I knew that this was going to be a problem And for Aboriginal communities. In March, I went public and said that if the coronavirus into Aboriginal communities, it will spread like wildfire, which is proven to be the case. And uh, so why it has taken people so long to just accept the advice that we have given is beyond me. But what the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services is good at is establishing a good relationship with the client population, the people who use our Aboriginal health services, and make sure that they share with them as much information about coronavirus and why it's important for people to practice all the public health measures as they can and... To get vaccinated. So we've now got uh, people going door to door in a num- quite a number of our health services because there's been this complacency and hesitancy. There's been a lot of really misleading, wrong information on social media and that's been very concerning and you can't stop that. You can try to counter it with better messaging and Our services have been encouraged to do that because they know how to frame things in the local vernacular so that it makes it more meaningful to the listening audience in their areas. So I think it's the existing relationship that our services have with the community and the clients. I think it's that they're trusted, they're treated with uh, respect. You know, cultural respect and cultural safety are key elements of our service provision in the comprehensive primary healthcare model that we deliver in the main. And, um, you know, I think that people have really understood that and accepted that. So there's a lot more trust between us and uh, and the patients that we have um, and that's all good well for us to be able to get through to our people the importance of looking after themselves during COVID and getting the vaccination.
0: The response to the threat of COVID overshadowed a lot of the really great work you do in your capacity as lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks and that of course brings us back to the Closing the Gap strategy. Overall Auntie Pat, what's your impression of how it's going?
1: Slowly but surely, is what I would say at this point. But things have to ramp up now, Larissa. So we've had our first round of implementation plan, and, uh, of which the Coalition of Picks has done an independent analysis of every one of them. We will be workshopping the findings with the government so that they understand clearly what the findings are how they can improve in their next iteration. So every year, states have to put out an implementation plan and an annual report against that. And they have to be publicly available documents so that people can monitor it themselves and the public can know what governments have committed to. So a bit disappointing the first round because a lot of existing work that's already been underway is reflected in those in the first plan, but hopefully we will start to see a move to new initiatives and, you know, a real movement in shared decision-making arrangements and partnerships with our people directly, where our people can negotiate with government about how they want what particular priorities responded to, uh, building and strengthening the Aboriginal community-controlled sector and enabling greater self-determination for our people, it's going to take a bit longer on the third one, but it's one that is really important, and that's the ensuring that government agencies who interact with our people are culturally respectful and safe through all their engagement. And that means organisations like hospitals and police and corrections and home, out-of-home care, housing authorities and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of work to do there, but there's a lot of our people who know uh, why that's so important and can assist those agencies to transform. And the fourth priority reform, of course, is the availability of data and information to local organisations and communities to make informed decisions in their negotiations with government. So, I'm, um, you know, we'll really have to start putting those measures and see that... They're being incorporated in the way that governments are responding to the provisions in the National Agreement and fulfilling their obligations under the National Agreement.
0: It's been an amazing transition, really, that a lot of people wouldn't have observed about what a difference it's made to actually have the Coalition of Peaks at the table, Aunty Pat.
1: Yes, it has. and. Uh, it's an enormous workload uh, that we 've taken on for our own organisations without many additional resources, and so we keep on having to remind governments that they 've got to put the money on the table for some of these things to happen and continue to happen and well, but the important thing is being at the table, negotiating and just keeping them accountable as much as we can, which is what we agreed to do.
0: Another area of concern for our communities this year has been a proposal by the federal government to tighten identification laws around the voting process. What issues does this raise for you, Andy Pat?
1: Well, my, my chairman put out a press, chairperson put out a press release on that, absolutely condemning the intent of the legislation. Where I mean, it's not as though our people walk around with ID on them, and looks to us like a disenfranchisement of our people, especially in remote areas. And, uh, you know, so I think that uh, an appalling, unnecessary piece of legislation. Vote fraud in Australia is not an issue. The Australian Electoral Commission has confirmed that time and time again. So why would you put a measure like that in? Why wouldn't you spend your time educating the Australian public about the voting system and how to make your vote count? and to make sure that every eligible Australian over the, year, over the age of 18 is enrolled so that they can uh, cast their ballot. But measures that go towards alienating people from their democratic right to cast their vote and their actual requirements, because voting is compulsory in Australia, so you turn up to vote, uh, you have to show your ID, which you don't carry, or you don't have, uh, and so are you then penalised for not voting? I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with this bill, and we are dead against it. And we uh, hope that everyone takes notice and objects to it as strongly as we do
0: this legislation has been compared to the similar process in the U.S. around voter registrations and that has been just one part of what's been seen as an ongoing attack on democracy in the United States. I know you always have your eye on what's happening around the world as well. What are your thoughts on what you've seen in relation to the health of American democracy over the last 12 months?
1: I think Western democracy, you know, I I mean, I look across the world and I thank God for... Angela Merkel and her sensible leadership in Germany which she's now about to vacate and I just wish that we had more women leading countries and bringing you know the caring for the people and the integrity of democracy being at the centre of the work of government and I just think that it's failing everywhere I think Australian politics has deteriorated into a you know it's just shocking. Political point scoring, rorting the system in terms of programs that are, you know, basically pork-barrelling. And even though people say, oh, we've always put up with a bit of that and we all understand that everyone does it, but well, that doesn't mean to say it's acceptable. And I think that, you know, that's seen the rise in the number of independents nominating. And interestingly, the number of independents who are nominating for the next federal election a lot of them are women who don't want to be bound to the parties so it's very hard to get elected into the house of representatives if you're not a member of a major party but the outcome of this next election is going to be very interesting indeed because i think it might show a fair difference but i think really i'm ashamed of the way Australian governments are behaving and you know they really need to grow up and uh and act in the best interest of the public that they're elected to serve.
0: Well, it is part of our annual tradition of of having you on our last show of the year for our Year in Review through Arnie Pat's Eyes, uh, that we do get you to give a little bit of a report card or a, a grade to both the government and the Labor opposition in this case for how they've gone through the year. And I think you've given us a bit of a hint about how you might score on that. But overall, what would the report card from you look like on the Morrison government for this year?
1: Well, I think overall, the federal government started the handling of the COVID uh, pandemic very well. And I think the investments that were made for JobKeeper, for example, were absolutely essential, even though we had so many. And the increase in uh, the amount of money that Centrelink recipients, you know, was practically doubled made a difference to people surviving uh, without... Access to full-time employment, I thought they were good initiatives. Uh, I think the withdrawal of of the support to Centrelink recipients has been very sad and uh, and there's still not a realistic amount of money paid to our poorest and our most vulnerable members of our society. I think that the companies that profited from receiving job seeker when they weren't supposed to, Uh, or to hang their heads in shame because there's no legal requirement for them to repay that money, but it would certainly help the bottom line of the Australian government's deficit if they did repay that money. So you've got all these multi-million heirs uh, that have profiteered off of this, and I think that's wrong. I think it's a a real mark against corporate Australia. So I think that... uh, But the state premiers were the ones, in the end, that had been delegated so much of the responsibility for the handling of COVID. And that's been mixed, I think, with the closing of borders. And, you know, we feel like we've got a great separation across our uh, federation because of that. And I hope that that is brought to an end sooner rather than later. And, you know, I think that those states like Queensland and New South Wales, and even the territory sat on its hands a bit to get our people vaccinated, all our people. Because if you live in a country town, you've got a large Aboriginal presence. You know, you know everybody in the town, white, black or brindle, everyone needs to be vaccinated. So, you know, there's got to be more cooperation in those areas. Um, You know, talking a lot about the pandemic, I think the, the one area that really has surprised me has been the rate of... Increase in housing prices, and I think that there's been a run on housing by investors rather than real, you know, family units. And the cost of housing is just outrageous. Um, and I hope when the, uh, you know, there's a there's a rise in housing uh, prices, and there's a fall. And I hope when the fall comes, we don't see all those people who've mortgaged themselves to the hill, uh having to uh, force sales and lose considerably uh, in terms of their, you know, uh, investing in the Australian dream. I don't think that's been handled well, really, and I don't think governments are doing enough in relation to social housing. So a report card uh, for the Morrison government, I was doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. I'd say probably a C plus. Uh, because of how well they did on the pandemic, but how badly other things have been let slip. And I think that the climate change agenda is being treated um, a bit too flippantly. I'd like that to be seen, to be taken more seriously. So factors of leaving the vulnerable, as vulnerable as they've ever been in terms of income support, and uh, climate change, as well as the government has done on the COVID, you know, riding COVID through, still not out of the woods. I hope that they don't drop the ball because predictions are that come March next year, we'll have another upswing in COVID cases as we go into winter. So that's my assessment of the Morrison government. Albanese, really interesting to watch the opposition. I think there are many instances where they could have come out and supported First Nations issues a lot stronger, and uh, and they could have raised those issues a lot more often in the Parliament. And I'm pretty disappointed about that. So you know, Aboriginal housing should have been raised at every opportunity. The overcrowding, and how many decades have we been saying that as Aboriginal leaders, that you know, from the community and and organisational levels. You know, every community can point to the need for overcoming the stress on our housing. I think that Labor could have and should do a lot more in that regard. The heritage legislation uh, protection, while they've been part of, a, you know, the inquiry in the federal government, and uh, there's a very good report as a result of that uh, federal government inquiry, um, you know, we really need to, to see... Uh, that a lot of the recommendations brought to fruition. Not a good sign when you see the Western Australian government tabling their bills uh, in Parliament for heritage protection and Aboriginal groups having a glimpse at it before it's introduced to the Parliament tomorrow without the safeguards that Aboriginal people uh, are wanting. The publicity, the spin from the government is that there will be greater safeguards, but whether they satisfy native title interests has yet to be seen because I haven't seen the provisions of the bill and I'm sure many others haven't either, and especially the key people in Western Australia, the TOS themselves.
0: Aunty Pat, just um, sort of final bit of our time with you. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps reflect more personally just from your, your travels through the year, the very tough year that's been, the very busy year that's been, but from your personal perspective, what was your low point and your high point?
1: Well, my low point was when COVID hit Wilcannia, no doubt about that, because I had warned governments about this. And so I had local Aboriginal people like um, Bob Davies had written to governments last year in May, in March, specifically raising Wilcannia. I also raised it in a submission uh, to the COVID uh, inquiry in July last year and I used two community case studies. One was Yarrabah and one was Wilcannia. And everything I said proved to be the case. Um, so you wonder what, you know, what you've got to do to convince people about the need for them to get in early and, you know, I was disappointed with the police commissioner's refusal to close communities in, uh, in uh, New South Wales, particularly when leaders had asked for Wilcannia to be closed to the general public, you know? Um, I mean, if people could have just driven straight through and not been able to stop, that would have helped, you know? But I think the low point was Wilcannia and, and the deaths that came... Uh, because up until the outbreak in New South Wales, we had 153 infections of COVID and no deaths, no deaths until, you know, it hit Western New South Wales. And, and look at the, you know, the figures now, I just can't remember them off the top of my head. And my high point was when I took two weeks leave recently because I was just so exhausted.
0: <laughs> well, I hope when you do your year in review of 2022, you've had a little bit more time for yourself. You do so much good work and you're such a precious resource in the community. We do need you to look after yourself and you're always giving us that good advice. But just finally, what is, are you most looking forward to in 2022?
1: Well, I'm looking forward to our people being as vaccinated as highly as possible, the numbers. And I'm looking forward to the new year feeling refreshed and ready to take on uh, a much more open Australia where all families can be united and we can get back to a more normal type of lifestyle that would be most welcome.
0: Aunty Pat, you're one of our absolute favourite, wisest voices in Indigenous Australia, and we're very grateful to have your insights tonight. So thank you so much for giving us some time, your very precious, valuable time when you are so busy and working so hard. And, you know, it's just always wonderful to be able to finish the year with your wisdom. Thank you so much for all the important work that you do.
1: My pleasure, Larissa, and let me wish all of the listeners a very happy Christmas and a fantastic new year, and to you and your staff as well.
0: Thank you, Arnie Pat. Arnie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks, as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO.